a good thing is that it's no longer controversial or new, I think, to say that the way we're working is not working. So I think pretty much all organizations now recognize that things need to change, which is good because that wasn't always the case. But it's interesting because I'm seeing that it's happening even in what I would call more kind of stuck or like legacy bureaucracy organizations. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode. Today, we have our guest is Lisa Gill. Uh, she's an organizational self-management coach and trainer with tough leadership training. And she was included in the Thinkers 50 Radar 2020 for her work with self-managing teams. She's also the host of a great podcast called Leader Morphosis, where she interviews thought leaders and pre- practitioners from all over the world about the future of work. And she's also the author of a book called Moose Heads on the Table, Stories about Self-Managing Organizations from Sweden. So with Lisa, we really uh, went into depth about this idea of self-managing teams and what it takes to enable an organization that is based on a self-managing structure, let's say. So we really went into the, let's say, human aspect of decentralized organizations and how do you foster this kind of culture of self-management with the right accountability and incentive mechanisms and the right mindset and leadership in organizations that's really at the core of her work. Uh, We also went into the role of technology and we talked about what type of technology stack do you need to enable these processes and how do different organizations uh, adopt and and use different technologies. Uh, For example, we talked about uh, collective decision-making tools like Lumio, but also co-budget as a way to really enable teams to decide on the allocation of funds. And this is something that is really uh, central to enabling these uh, new ways of working. So the starting point of our conversation was really that uh, it's more and more evident that the way we're working is not working. And then we went into uh, trying to unpack uh, what is changing, what is she observing from all her different interviews and working with pioneering organization in the field of self-management. So a great episode. I hope you really enjoy it. Uh, If you want to access all the references mentioned in the episode, you can go to boundaryless.io slash resources slash podcast, and you will find Lisa's episode there. So enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. Uh, Today, I'm here with my usual co-host, Stina Eikila. Hello, hello. And uh, we have an old friend, uh, Lisa uh, Gill. Thank you so much for, for, for coming back on this, um, I would say, space of conversation because you, you were previously featured in one of our uh, most uh, watched uh, webinars with uh, Dave Snowden and at, uh, Sergio Caredda, if I'm not wrong. And uh, we are super happy to have you back uh, on this uh, conversation space. So first of all, Lisa, uh, you are doing so amazing work, uh, both with your partners with the, with the companies you work with, with the organizations you work with, but also as a, an observer, I would say. So you are really, since many years now, uh, you run your leader offices uh, podcast that uh, has been the place where I've been listening about uh, pioneering work in terms of organizational 
you know, development perspectives and progressive organizations in general. Uh, so it would be great maybe if as a starting point you just take some minutes to guide us through what you're seeing in terms of emerging trends and what's coming uh, in the world of organizing and, and, and teams and, and, you know, work basically. So can you give us this quick update uh, as, as a starting point? Yeah, sure. Thank you for, for having me, first of all. It's funny, someone described me once as like a reporter on the future of work, and I quite liked that as a, as a tag. <laughs> but I've spoken now to nearly 80 people for my podcast over the years and uh, interacted with many more organizations. And I would say, you know, giving a bit of an overview of what I'm noticing at the moment, a good thing is that it's no longer controversial or new, I think, to say that the way we're working is not working. So I think pretty much all organizations now recognize that things need to change, which is good because that wasn't always the case. But it's interesting because it's I'm seeing that it's happening even in what I would call more kind of stuck or like legacy bureaucracy organizations. For example, in the UK, I've been contacted and talking to a number of organizations in the public sector, in health and social care sector, that are really committed to exploring more decentralized ways of working because they're realizing that it's not just, you know, a nice to have, it's not a way to be competitive, it's like a way to survive, that they are facing so much complexity and so many challenges in terms of resources and, you know, all of these kinds of things that they are learning from examples like Bootsorg in the Netherlands that, you know, this is the way we need to go. So it's also interesting in the, in the kind of social impact sector to see that there are a number of kind of paradigm shifts also away from a kind of parent-child kind of rescuer service model also, you know, especially for NGOs and, and those kinds of organizations, thinking much more in terms of like being a partner or kind of empowering the people that they're serving instead of trying to save them or rescue them. And then, you know, Almost at the complete other end of the spectrum is, you know, the field of DAOs. And there's a lot of excitement about DAOs and Web3. And I'm by no means an expert in this space, uh, but I've been starting to learn about this and talking to my colleagues and some other people who are working in this space. And it's interesting to see what's kind of lacking or missing in the DAO space that can draw inspiration and learning from the kind of new ways of working movement and then you've got sort of cooperatives as another kind of third sphere that have obviously been exploring ideas of kind of shared ownership for a long time. But also they are now starting to learn more from people in the self-management movement, people in the DAO movement. So it's exciting to me to see that there is uh, the beginnings of some cross-pollination going on and thinking about, you know, trying to, to kind of partner technology and the more human relational pieces because it's really not an either or. So I tend to explore the mindset, the culture, the, the relationships, the communication part of new ways of working, if you want to call it that. I'm calling it new ways of working. They're not really new, but it's, it's hard to find a term that catches all. But of course, I don't for a second think that structures and processes aren't important. Of course they are. So I really think it's like both and. And also, finally, I would say having spoken to uh, nearly 80 people from my podcast, there is, you know, at least 80 different ways of doing 
more decentralized ways of organizing, of, you know, being more human together at work. So there's no uh, one size fits all. And, uh, you know, a hire is very different to a Burtzorg or another organization. And, uh, you know, so I'm really interested in not being dogmatic, but finding some of the key principles that help people to create their own unique version of whatever works for them, given that, that unique group of human beings. Right. I mean, I mean, I was thinking to two things while you were um, talking about that, because you, you said uh, we recognize that the old, old ways of working don't work anymore. Right. And I was thinking about what from what perspective. And I and I see two, maybe two perspectives, right, that we can explore maybe first one side and then another side. So the, the first side, I would say, is probably the perspective of markets. You mentioned something around this, for example, when you said uh, constraint of resources and uh, things that they, for example, these healthcare sector players have to respond to, right, in terms of budgets and things like that. So I would say that... Um, First of all, there is an, an element of this, uh, uh, you know, expression of the old ways of working don't work anymore that is related to uh, the dynamics that we are seeing in the market. So more competitive uh, landscape, uh, new technologies. For example, we are seeing a lot of product-based uh, organizational models increasingly, like uh, when you have a team that is more, much more capable of building uh, uh, digital products, for example, the question would be what kind of implications you are seeing in terms of organizational model and team dynamics, team distribution, team responsibilities, and so on. Uh, and the other side that maybe we can uh, explore a little bit later it's the side of uh, uh, engagement. So we know from those recurring uh, surveys that from time to time get into into our hands that uh, you know 80% of workers are disengaged here and there. The question would be, why are they disengaged? Uh, are they disengaged because of their organization or maybe uh, because in general uh, the context of uh, work and society is you know, dramatically changing, uh, we are facing very challenging times and so on. And so maybe the very idea of finding meaning at work uh, needs to be recast and into new shapes, new, new, new ways, because just, you know, contributing into existing behemoths maybe doesn't really deliver anymore the meaning that, that we are seeking for. So these are two angles that I would like to explore. So maybe we can start with a more a mechanistic one, I would say, right? The more uh, complicated versus complex. So how are you seeing uh, technologies, changes in terms of uh, business models and uh, new competition impacting the way organizations reshape themselves to be to stay competitive, let's say? I have to think about that because it's, I, I suppose it reveals my bias that I am, someone said to me the other day, in fact, that some people are exploring new ways of working to be more competitive and some people are exploring new ways of working to kind of explore the frontiers of collaboration. It's like two C's. And I'm very much mostly spending my time in the collaboration one. So the competitive one to me is often like a a side effect or a bonus of the one on the left. And I, I get that that's a really, uh, you know, a pretty privileged position to be in. <laughs> no, but I mean, you can you can look into this question from a more positive perspective. So, so to say, 
what are new technologies maybe enabling new forms of cooperation? How are they uh, reshaping more from the perspective of uh, potential that they are enabling into teams? And so I'm really curious to see if, if you are seeing practices emerging that uh, are being enabled, for example, by new technologies. So new tools, for example, that we use uh, to visualize teamwork or to write agreements. And uh, we, we see, for example, new tools that have emerged in the last few months, uh, like, you know, from Murmur to Maptio. I know that they're both your friends. And so maybe you can, you can reframe the, this first initial part of the question more into what is technology now enabling us to do in a way that is more efficient, that makes teams more capable? What are the implications from the perspective of uh, decision-making styles or uh, budget management elements and so on? Mm, yeah, I think maybe I can talk to like a couple of tools that uh, I have kind of first-hand experience of in decentralized communities that I'm a part of. So I've been a member of Inspiral for a number of years, and one of the tools that was developed uh, out of Inspiral was a decision-making tool called Lumio, um, which I know you're uh, familiar with. But it's it's interesting because in the last couple of weeks, even the whole Inspiral community has been uh, kind of developing a proposal using Lumio to do quite a big pivot in terms of what Inspiral's design is and membership makeup looks like. And Lumio has facilitated that. And it's very easy for me to forget that that's not commonplace for many people in organizations. So when I'm working with other teams, for example, that are learning for the first time how to do participatory decentralized decision making, I take for granted sometimes that I and my colleagues are very practiced in, for example, asynchronous discussions that shape proposals and then improve proposals and then, you know, doing consent-based decisions based on that and people sharing and understanding what it means to block something, what it means to um, agree with something or disagree or abstain or, you know, all of these different options that are quite nuanced. You know, we're, we're used to practicing decisions in a very different way. So that's enabled us as a global community to make some very complex decisions in quite an efficient and involving way. And another tool that's come out of Inspiral is CoBudget, which has been trying to do a similar thing with, with budgeting and, and making budgeting more collaborative and decentralized. And then, as you mentioned, there's tools like Murmur that are in development at the moment. And I was talking to Aaron Dignan just a few weeks ago about Murmur and, and their vision. It's really exciting to me is really they're kind of prototyping with people who are testing the tool at the moment because they find and I found this too that it's very hard for people to come up with agreements you know but I think most people agree okay agreements that makes sense that's helpful but coming up with them is quite difficult because it's making the implicit explicit and so Murmur is developing and iterating all of these templates so if you're an organization that wants to explore being more decentralized, you'll be able to sign up to Murmur and pick a kind of package of, you know, these are the 10 agreements that we recommend you start with. You know, they've been prototyped, they've been iterated. These ones are really useful. They're about, you know, decision making. They're about, I don't know, budget and so on. So that's that's really exciting. And, and that, that's just like a handful. The other one you mentioned, Maptio, again, is like a way of once you kind of move away from this top-down hierarchy 
how do you kind of get transparency and map all the different initiatives that start to pop up in the organization and who how do you know who is doing what and who is sort of the source of which initiative and so mapdio is is one of many different tools out there that are designed to help people map initiatives and roles and and any other things that you think are useful as a way of kind of capturing and vis- visually representing the organization that's not one of those you know tree shaped boxy <laughs> kind of org charts that that you know is now what hundreds of years old yeah you're right i think i take for granted sometimes that that these tools and these technologies are facilitating and making it so much more efficient for us to do quite complex things and i think the best tools help us do that kind of human messy stuff and help create the guardrails for us to do that human messy stuff that's why lumio is so great because it kind of gives you these different decision templates it gives you the different options you can visually see who's agreed and disagreed and blocked and so on and you can kind of follow the lifeline of a proposal and then there's a record of it so that trains you over time to become much more skilled at making decisions in a totally different way Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's really interesting to look into how this emergent uh, set of tools uh, are uh, on their own creating a new kind of substrate from which uh, new forms of organizing are uh, emerging in turn. So we can look into this from the perspective of Marsha McLuhan, uh, infamous uh, quote, you know, we shape our tools and uh, those tools shape us, uh, that maybe is not even McLuhan, but uh, uh, also from the perspective of a Conway's law. So how, if we change how people communicate, most likely we are going to change what they built uh, in the market and in society. So it's very, very interesting, I mean, to see how these new tools are emerging. Yeah, I picked up that. I, I think it's interesting what you mentioned, because we are, we are talking almost like about building blocks also of decentralized autonomous organizations in a way, but from a different kind of toolbox. And I'm always curious about how much can you standardize? Uh, and I know that since you work uh, really on this both end, the technology on the one hand, and then a lot of the mindset, the leadership, communication, the DAO sometimes seem to be all about standardizing. Mm. And you have to have a sort of a computational model for every possible scenario, but but the the main thing is that you should be able to trust that this is fair, this has been agreed, and this is sort of automated uh, into your organization. So listening to you, you know this this seems also quite a lot more nuanced and meshed in a way. You pick the tool, but then you need to also introduce it to people and and kind of explain how it works and. And so on. So, have you come across this this friction in your work between too much standardization and and too much openness in in how you shape things? Yeah, definitely. I feel like a mistake I make accidentally again and again is assuming that one organization I work with will take to a particular tool or approach in the same way that another organization does. So, you know, I've introduced Lumio as a as a tool in organizations, for example, and some organizations love it and they immediately get it and adapt to it and others don't get it at all. And they find it really hard and they say, no, we, we don't want to do this. We want to invent our own thing or and they find it really hard to practice a different way of, of making decisions. So I think it's I think it's 
tricky. And I know in DAOs, for example, the sort of default for a lot of DAOs is to have quite a limited uh, kind of voting model, as I understand it, where it's like agree, disagree, abstain, and that's it. And there's not that much nuance for people to really be involved in shaping proposals or iterating them. So I think there's a lot to be learned there. And I really think it depends on the organization because I was in Portugal recently spending some time with one of the co-founders of of a tech company called Mindera. And they have kind of gone the complete opposite way from standardization where they have spent a lot of time involving people in a process that creates a completely bespoke outcome for their organization and they are very aware that that takes a long time for example how they designed their process for compensation and people to self-manage their salaries it took them a long time and they had small focus groups come up with different proposals and then they integrated those and then they piloted something but the benefit of that is that everyone has shaped it And when new people join the organization and kind of question it and say, hmm, could we do this in a different way? Or what about if we do this instead? You can sort of look back at the history of how it was shaped and all of the people that shaped it. And I I feel like that is more compelling in a way than, nope, this is the standardized way because, you know, this small group of people decided that that was the, you know, the, the best way to do it. I think it really depends on what principle you prioritize more than anything. So that organization, their main guiding principle was connection. They really wanted to create an organization where people were really connected and it was shaped and personalized for all of the people who worked in the organization. Other organizations are much more shaped by the market or they're much more driven by, I don't know, optimization or whatever. So I think it, whatever principle you decide to prioritize is going to shape your approach. So I think it's helpful to get clear on, you know, what principles do you want to prioritize? Yeah, that's interesting to see like that for some companies, it might be the most important thing and everyone agrees on that is to optimize and not sort of waste time because you have a clear idea of what you, what you need to execute already. So there's always that balance to, to sort of distract from what, from what you need to achieve and how, how you go about that. So very interesting uh, points that, that we were discussing. I was thinking to uh, maybe try to shift into the second element. I spoke about engagement, for example, and uh, in relationships to, to this idea that uh, uh, the way we work doesn't work anymore. And um, I was thinking to um, essentially, uh, we have been focusing for a couple of decades since the start of the agile revolution and, and the teal uh, movement and, and so on, uh, we'll be focusing a lot on the how, so on how people work together. Mm-hmm. But I feel that we have been focusing maybe less, uh, less towards the what, what our organizations produce. You know, for example, you said uh, companies, organizations want to create uh, uh, ways for their employees to be able to express themselves. And uh, uh, you also said that um, maybe some companies optimize for the market while others uh, optimize for different elements. But I think uh, this is true to some extent. You know, maybe at the end of the day, if, if companies are on the market, they're obviously optimizing for markets because uh, there's not much more that they can do if they want to exist. So 
you know, basically working inside these, uh, I mean, we can say that uh, capitalistic market optimized organizations comes with uh, certain built-in uh, elements, let's say, that uh, the moment we question the what, we have to start making trade-offs, basically. So what, what do I mean with that? Let me be more clear. A, a lot of people are talking about a kind of... Uh, being on the verge of a transition uh, beyond the teal, uh, beyond the agile. Uh, for example, I was on a podcast a few weeks ago uh, with our common friend, uh, Bonita Roy, and she spoke about uh, this idea of uh, becoming uh, post-formal actors. So the idea that the natural evolution of teal and agile uh, may lead us or should lead us to maybe question not just the, 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 the how, but also the what we do. And with what, I mean, maybe questioning the very, much, the very frames of what a corporate is and uh, pushing us to move away from just uh, working in different ways into maybe creating different institutional forms that can help us to, to, to do essentially two things. One is overcome the systemic lock-ins that we are, uh, otherwise subject to uh, as, you know, the markets and make us uh, essentially precarious, but also to some extent exercise a certain critique to an otherwise very positivist technological progress element. So to some extent express some restraint or some critique of uh, efficiency and doing work better, you know, much, much more about doing work more, with more meaning and more salient for us uh, as uh, we face, for example, the breakdown of ecological systems or, you know, political crisis and, you know, everything we are basically seeing in the last couple of years since the pandemic, the, the war in Ukraine and the uh, and supply chain breakdown and so on. So that, that was a long reflection, but uh, to end it over to you, what do you see coming up? I'm especially interested in terms of uh, if you see this kind of critique of the what we do and of the organizational forms we use also coming from inside existing organizations. And the three of us, we share our experience in building very informal, very new types of organization. You have been working with Inspira. I've been working with Justina, with WeShare, and uh, also Boundaryless is a rather horizontal and you know, different type of organization. But how, I, how do you see this coming up? Do, are, are you spotting also this transition to what uh, Bonita calls post-formal work, post-formal actors? One thing that stood out for me in what you said is like, you know, post-teal, post-agile, and really kind of interrogating the what. I'm seeing that a lot of organizations, it's sort of like the the backlash, I think, of the popularity or the rising popularity of some of these methodologies is that they become kind of meaningless. And I was tweeting yesterday about, you know, some organizations I'm talking to, I really think could benefit from having like a bonfire of these things for when they get stuck on, you know, is this teal or not teal? Is this self-managed or not self-managed? And they end up in these kind of pro self-management and anti-self-management groups and this us versus them thing. And, and then suddenly they're spending all of their time focusing on the self-management instead of the work. And in that case, I think it becomes unhelpful. And then it's, I think, good to go beyond that and refocus on why are we doing this and what is it 
serving in terms of, you know, the people that we're serving or the products that we're creating. So that's interesting, a kind of a backlash in a way of, of that. And I think organizations are also, as you said, thinking about what is it that we're doing? I know, for example, in the UK, a, a friend and colleague of mine, Helen Sanderson, um, and a number of people that she's worked with in trying to pilot self-managing teams in like midwifing or in home care and, and areas like that, even when they can prove and and get regulated and sort of, you know, tick all of the boxes and say, look, these self-managing teams tick all of the boxes that you need to tick to say this is safe and this is effective and so on. And still they're really struggling against the the system and the institutions because it's sort of, it's still a bit like the computer says, no, the system is built this way and this doesn't fit within the system, even if they can prove that it works. So I, I do think there is a need to, you know, think outside of the system and I don't know what that looks like, but I, but I know that different people are working on that and it's one of the promising potentials, I, I guess, of, of DAOs and, and Web3 also. But I'm also thinking about this organization I mentioned just a moment ago, Mindera, and in, in their own sort of small and similar way to something like Hire, which spins out these uh, kind of micro enterprises. You know, they started as a tech company, but they designed their office environment to support collaboration and more personalized decentralized ways of working so instead of having like one large office as they grew there are about 800 people now they have this building they don't own the building but they have like 15 different offices small ones and each office has its own kitchen and its own independent space it has like a, a sort of more relaxed space and then it has a working space and a kitchen so they have 15 different kitchens and they prioritize that because as I said before, they they want to prioritize this principle of connection. But because they learned from doing that, the value of creating an environment that supports those kinds of ways of working, they then spun out a company called Lemonworks that works with other companies to design their office spaces to contribute to more collaboration and, and connection and things like that. And that's a way that they've now started almost like a Trojan horse into other organizations of getting them thinking about new ways of working because most organizations, when they redesign their office environment, don't involve employees in in what that would look like, even though they're the ones who are going to be using it. And then another thing is that the cleaners in the building, they didn't like the kind of hierarchical dynamic that was going on and the way that the cleaners were being treated by their employers. So they then decided, well, let's create a cleaning company, like a self-managing cleaning company. What's interesting and what inspires me is to see organizations that are looking outside of themselves and into the wider ecosystem and thinking more in terms of, I guess it's a, a regenerative mindset and thinking about, you know, not just things inside the organization, but also relationships with suppliers and, you know, as you said, relationship to the environment. And I think there are some really good examples of peer-led movements. I'm part of a course at the moment run by a UK organization called Huddlecraft, and they pioneered this initiative called Money Movers, where they're getting together groups of women to kind of empower them in terms of their personal finances and move their finances into more kind of climate-centric, ethical spaces. And so far, they've helped to facilitate moving, I think, 1.2 million pounds, and they have a big ambition to do it with 
X billion by 2030. And so they're creating these these little decentralized communities of women and training them up to be more empowered in how they talk about finances. So that's like a, a kind of social uh, activist example. But I think thinking wider in terms of all of the touch points and all of the things that are interdependent with whatever it is that we're doing and, and how we're living is is really interesting to see. I think this um, allows me to come back to some questions that I had uh, for you around accountability and, and incentives and those kind of things, because it sounds like often in those terms when we talk about, you know, the old way is not working. Now we've repeated that it's becoming a meme, but we somehow think that there is a lot of potential hidden, right, in self-organized teams. That's and that's we want to unleash that potential. It's, it's somehow you get this view that the, the industrial model the way of organizing has trapped people in a way in uh, locked in them into systems. And I think that to to a large extent, of course, that's that's what we are seeing. But I'm also interested in the other side that if uh, people are freed of some of these uh, structures that are holding them back. There will, of course, be differences in terms of contribution and uh, willingness to contribute and taking responsibility, being accountable. Some people might have that sort of more naturally, but for sure in teams, that's the key question to to be solved, right? And I guess in the DAO space that that is trying to be solved through having a very transparent and open ledger so that you you cannot you, you know what you, you can claim and, and not and so on. Uh, but I'm curious to know from your work, because I'm sure that this is really at the core of what you do, how do you create those kind of uh, mechanisms in a team, for instance? So let's say you have decentralized power, they have responsibilities now, but how do you work with the organization to make sure that the incentives and the accountability is, is there? Because otherwise, even if you can have a lot of social impact potentially, that needs to be realized, right, in reality. Yeah, it's such a good question because... I think when I first started working with these ideas some years ago, I was quite naive and I assumed that hierarchy was the problem. You know, as soon as we remove top-down hierarchies, everything falls into place and it's like, you know, utopia. Of course, in in reality, it's not true, but I think it's a, a misconception held by a lot of people that I talk to that, you know, if we for example, install holacracy, then that takes care of, you know, accountability, for example. But in my experience, that's not the case at all, because I think we're so trained in being kind of compliant and passive that it takes some time and some intention for people to really shift their behavior. And structures and processes help a lot, but they don't seem to be enough, which is interesting to me. And Amy Edmondson talks about this, for example, in in her book, Teaming. She says that, you know, if you focus only on psychological safety and not accountability or, you know, very low on accountability, then what you end up with is this sort of comfort zone where people don't know how to hold each other accountable. They don't know how to give each other feedback. And you kind of slide into this sort of laissez-faire, blurry, you know, fuzzy space. And I I think almost all organizations that I speak to that start exploring self-organization end up here. It's also like, you know, to use the Frederick Laloux terminology, I think it's the green trap that it's very easy for people to think, you know, they're in teal, for example, but actually 
they're stuck in this space of, you know, everyone needs to be equal. I daren't say this or do that because that would be me being like a boss and we don't have bosses anymore. So, you know, I'll just keep quiet. And so you end up with this real leadership vacuum and accountability vacuum. I think tools like Murmur, for example, could help with that in terms of agreements. But I also think, and I'm not saying this is the truth, but in my experience, it's very helpful to have some kind of training or or learning spaces for people to practice another way of being together. So I'm often leading courses or, or workshops or kind of coaching people to do that because oftentimes we're not aware of the kind of habitual embodied ways of behaving that we have. So if I've never been a manager in a traditional company, then I've never really had to be accountable. I've always had someone sort of chasing me or, uh, you know, being ultimately responsible. So, you know, if I suddenly introduce self-managing structures and processes, that person's not suddenly magically going to be really responsible and accountable. It's going to take some time for them to figure that out. And the same goes for, you know, people who have formerly been managers or who have any kind of power, like to stop micromanaging people or or being the one that is always responsible or only responsible takes practice and takes awareness. So I think it's really useful to have spaces where you can reflect together, where you can practice together another way of, of being together and get feedback and coaching on that. This is what's interesting to me about the DAO space, because how do you do that if you know your colleagues are people who you maybe have never met, you don't know their real name, you don't know what they look like even, you know, this sort of trustless organizations, you know, that's really fascinating to me and like a, a really interesting question because, you know, in, in the organizations I'm working in, I see that there's a lot of value in, in creating these spaces for people to shift and that's not a quick fix and, and it's not solved only by structures and processes. I mean, I think we are in the core, hot, uh, white hot core of the of the conversation here because uh, I really resonate when you say hierarchy is not a problem. I really resonate with you when you said that you know we have to overcome that that uh, green trap, right? That you mentioned of just applying this kind of uh, very lazy postmodern uh, thinking of, you know, ensuring that we have all the diversity and ensuring that we do the things according to the, you know, that we put our flag of the month in our Facebook profile, you know, that's the point. <laughs> we really go beyond that. And and you, you, you talked about Teal as going beyond that, right? And I'm curious to understand then how is Teal uh, really different from Green, uh, and I mean, those that are not into the book from Frederick Laloux or in general, paradynamics and developmental theories may be a bit lost at the moment. But uh, the point is, how do we go beyond the postmodern, uh, let's say, thinking in terms of organizing if we don't uh, really reckon with the trade-offs, right? One easy way to try to um, integrate these trade-offs uh, Maybe that of uh, uh, you know acknowledging that the market exists, right? And for example, when I think about hire, and I think about hire is driving uh, profit and loss at the team level, 
uh, this is a very strong uh, way to let's say push these trade-offs into teams and say you know you can be as you know as collaborative as you want can choose whatever ways of taking decisions you uh, you want to 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 use but then you have to be profitable right and this is a you know it's a way to uh, you know to acknowledge these trade-offs trade-offs and uh, basically created these checks and balance between uh, adopting the latest management uh, trends and uh, existing in the market. But at some point, I think one interesting point that uh, reconnects with what I was raising before, uh, the, the idea of post-formal actors and overcoming capital markets and capitalism more in general, boils down to other type of trade-offs that could be related to Uh, for example, uh, embeddedness into place. Or it could be related to starting to produce instead of, uh, you know, basically operating in organizations that produce for ourselves as we contribute into these organizations. So you can think of, for example, user-owned cooperatives or something like that. Uh, Instead of producing value inside companies that are situated in these specialized markets that uh, we all you know, use uh, the outcomes uh, of. So, so are you seeing signals, essentially, that uh, let you think that this movement can be the, the movement that gives birth to a new kind of age of players that uh, will be able to be more sovereign, more capable of producing the fundamentals of the economy uh, and to re-embed the organizations into place and to, uh, to some extent... Uh, uh, accept the trade-offs in terms of convenience or in terms of uh, participation in these uh, very disconnected uh, uh, digital economies and, you know, the narrative of uh, uh, digital nomads is really untenable sometimes. So what do you see? Do you see this uh, emerging from this, uh, from this movement, uh, something that is more grounded, more integrated in, into place, uh, uh, more conscious of the fact that uh, if you make a system more efficient, it will just end up end with consuming more of the world, basically. Your question is making me think back to the very first self-managing company I ever visited, I think back in 2015, maybe, called Matt Black Systems, um, which is an aerospace engineering company based in the UK. They transformed... At this point, it's I think maybe nearly 20 years ago. So they've been practicing it for a while and they experimented with a number of things before they kind of ended up in self-management, which for them was kind of taking lean to like a, an extreme <laughs> where everyone in the organization is like a lean unit of one and all of the project managers do absolutely everything facilitated by their kind of bespoke IT system. But an interesting phenomenon there that was fascinating to me then as it is now was that it sort of optimized and itself at a, and it sort of stayed at around about 12 people as far as I know that's still the case um, and they've brought out a book recently about their kind of journey and the, the owner was telling me that it's one of his hopes was that more people would be inspired by this way of working and then you know go and set up their own companies in in a similar vein but that hadn't really happened. I think one person had started to do that. And I noticed that in in quite a few organizations, if you think about Burtzorg or Haya, you know, those organizations 
also have a visionary leader. You know, Zhang Rumin is this very thoughtful, philosophical person, and Josta Bloch is very principled and clear about how they're working. And and both of them are quite humble in the sense that they say, you know, it's not us, it's, uh, you know, the organization exists without us. But I think it's, to circle back to your point about, you know, teal, and does that really transcend the kind of green, like, equality trap? I'm not a spiral dynamics expert, and I'm not dogmatic about it either. But I, I think a helpful lens can be to think of it, you know, as a spiral, and green is on the sort of collective side of the spiral. And teal then spirals round again to the individual aspect. In other words, I think a lot of these organizations that are moving beyond these concepts, if you like, are the ones that are really wrestling with the topic of power and, and recognizing that no structure or process or system is, is going to solve that problem you know, being self-managed doesn't automatically make you a more diverse, equitable, inclusive organization, sorry to say. It doesn't make you automatically a more uh, accountable organization. And as you said, in terms of trade-offs, Hire has decided as an organization that that they prioritize, you know, profit and loss, for example, in a micro-enterprise. And if you aren't able to be profitable at a certain point, you know, then you feel the direct impact of those consequences and uh, you know, your microenterprise dies effectively. You have to find another way of, of making a living, which is, one could argue, kind of brutal. I know it's not that brutal. I've, I've very sim- very much simplified it. But it's to me, it's also interesting to think about how exclusive these organizations can be because I think self-management is not for everyone. And I also think that, that that's okay. Maybe this is not the way that all organizations will, will organize or need to organize, but some will, and some people will thrive in those environments. There's an interesting study by Michael Wiley that came out recently, and it's not conclusive, but it points to some interesting findings about the types of people that thrived when, when an organization transformed to self-management compared to the control groups that didn't do any self-management. And the people that thrived were people who were more competent, that were more confident, um, you know, that were already kind of interested in the idea of self-management. So to your question about, you know, are these organizations sort of shifting things? Are they going to create more organizations like them? I think the answer is yes, but I think it's much slower and a, a much smaller minority than maybe many of us would hope. I feel like for every organization with, you know, however many thousands of people in it, it still seems to take quite a unique cluster of of personality traits and principles and values for people to spin off their own versions of, of such a company because it takes a lot of a lot of will, I think, and commitment and and courage to to do this because you're swimming against a massive tide, you know, the rest of the capitalist system is sort of pushing back against you all the time. So this is also why I think it's so valuable and important for us to reinvent the education system, because I think then we'll increase the likelihood that people will be able to go into these organizations and thrive and then start their own versions of these organizations if they can't find any that that look like this. So yeah, many, many things that I feel I could say on this point. 
It's very funny because this very week I was um, suggested to read a famous or maybe infamous book called The Sovereign Individual. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. It's a, a kind of uh, flagship book from the libertarian movement that has been um, proposed and proposed by Thiel and... Uh, Peter Thiel and uh, Ravikant and many others, you know, coming from this libertarian space. And uh, when you talk about overcoming this idea of power over into power with, uh, but you kind of inking into the more individual elements, right? You said Thiel may be about reintegrating some individual aspects, right, beyond uh, collective elements. So I, I, I was picturing it in my mind as power over you. No, so power on your, over yourself, let's say, right? So this kind of uh, more uh, self-centered conception of power and recognize the power you have as an individual, right? It's kind of both. Someone said recently in a talk that I really liked, it's finding an, an empowered relationship to power because most of us, like you said, most of us are either in a power over relationship to power, that I have power and I'm going to use it to get you know, to sort of exert my will on people, whether consciously or unconsciously, or power under, where it's like, oh, I don't really like this, but I'm going to wait for someone else to fix it, or that's not my account accountability. So, so Teal, in an ideal world, is, as I understand it, is supposed to integrate everything that comes before it, which means that I can hold the needs of the organization, the needs of others, whether that's one person or more people, and my own needs. This was a way that Mickey Kashtan put it that I liked. You know, and it's not possible always to meet all three of those, of course, but it's being able to hold them anyway, which is quite a complex thing to do. And I know there's a big debate about vertical development and, and adult development and whether that's elitist or helpful. Or, but that seems to be kind of an important development is is this having an empowered relationship to power rather than rejecting power or being unaware of it mm -hmm. yeah i mean i didn't want to imply that you were um, advising for a libertarian turn but uh, <laughs> uh, but um, to some extent i i think uh, uh, we should uh, understand that there is some signal coming from this perspective. And, uh, for example, if I think about the work of uh, Saifedina Mousse with uh, his uh, books, uh, Bitcoin Standard and the Fiat Standard more recently, I see, you know, we, we, we can see, for example, in the blockchain that uh, indeed it was prophetically uh, envisioned in this uh, sovereign individual book uh, and in other works uh, as part of the information society, Uh, so the emergence of this kind of systems of value accounting that are much more diverse and plural versus, you know, just letting central banks decide what to value. Hmm? It's a kind of uh, push to, for us to think of uh, how would a complex uh, organizational landscape really uh, look like. Because the one we have so far definitely is not complex friendly. You know, it's much more, uh, I would say, mechanistic and complicated. So maybe as we envision this synthesis, we will have to consider both perspectives and maybe reintegrate the individual and the collective at certain embedded level, no? in terms of communities and place. 
uh, that's probably you know my my impression, our impression after so many podcasts and, and so many conversations, and uh, uh, that's a very still very open question, right? So maybe as, as, a, as a recap, final recap, uh, we should we should say that uh, uh, you know as we look into the future of organizing, we may have to also look into uh, other approaches to society and value. For example, the uh, uh, the Uh, from from the perspective of the Austrian school um, and libertarianism uh, as well, uh, in complementing more, uh, you know, postmodern, uh, uh, you know, kind of traditional thinking that we 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 have been more, much more used uh, in terms of uh, uh, the tradition of uh, uh, progressive organizations and self management, uh, more in general. So I mean, I think we end up this conversation with more questions than 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 answers. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I feel it's great to see how things are also converging, right? Uh, and uh, uh, we are seeing, you know, uh, the need to uh, be more, to synthesize more, to integrate more, and to look into really transcending uh, what what we have uh, at the moment. So I think this awareness of the need. To, to reintegrate and transcend what we have. It's very alive in this conversation and uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, you will be there uh, spotting you know, the, the, the innovations as they happen uh, with your great uh, uh, observatory, uh, with your podcast and your work. So maybe we can close, uh, uh, Lisa, with just a few pointers to both your work or some interesting things that maybe people should be looking into coming up on your side. Yeah, thank you. I, I guess the first place for people to, to go to if they're interested is uh, the podcast website, which is leadermorphosis.co. And the, the podcast is also on the usual podcast platforms, but we're also now working to have more and more transcripts that have been tagged by different keywords and so on. So it's uh, ideally going to become a bit of a knowledge library. And I've also written a book, which is, you know, for anyone listening who who is more interested in the mindset, skill set, relational piece of working together in new ways. My book, Moose Heads on the Table, Stories from Self-Managing Organizations in Sweden, is some principles and some stories, some examples of, of organizations that my colleague Karen transformed going back as far as the 90s. And just some learnings from that. So I know that some people find that quite interesting as like a just another perspective, really. And then finally, you know, I'm also trying to write more short form things, blogs and, and things like that on social media. And probably the easiest way to find, you know, some of those thinkings out loud is to go to my website, which is reimaginaire.com. And there you'll also find links to Tough Leadership Training, who I'm collaborating with um, and and other resources. And of course, listeners will find all this on our notes as well. Yes. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, uh, again. And uh, uh, to our listeners, uh, we catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, And don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundless.io for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us 
to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.